So we are reading through the Bible together as a church. So those of you who are in small groups, we've been going through the story. This is an abridged version of the NIV Bible. It has chronological, the Bible's story written chronologically, and kind of shows you where, th- where different parts of the scriptures you're not familiar with, where they fall in the history. This helps you to familiarize with that. And perhaps one of the, one of the most useful things this week was just seeing where the book of Esther is located in history. It's during the ex- ex- exilic, ex- exilic period, a um, hundred years after Israel uh, in Judah was taken from the promised land under discipline from God and put into captivity in Babylon. So this is about a hundred years later that the story of Esther happens. And Esther is a, uh, a person who's, who's uh, well, we'll, 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 see, we'll see her story as we get into it. But it's been very useful to go through the book, uh, the story chronologically and just seeing where everything fits together, seeing where Psalms were written in the context of the Bible, been a lot of fun. Next week we are in Ezra and Nehemiah, which is a continuation of the story of the exiles rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. We talked about that last week. And the, the amazing thing about them was that there were people that had been there when Solomon's temple was built. There were people that were brand new to the community that were excited about this new temple being built. And there was a mixture of joy and sorrow that day where people that that remembered the glory of Solomon's temple were weeping when they saw the new temple foundation being built. And then the people that were brand new and hadn't seen Solomon's temple were just like, this is great, we've never had a temple before. But this is kind of the way when God works in a rebuilding project, you know, there's joy mixed with sorrow, there's nostalgia for the, for the past, and that can sometimes keep us from the, thing, the new, new thing that God is uh, trying to do. But uh, the, the, one of the amazing things we saw last week was that before doing any kind of building of a foundation or a temple, against all good advice, the people of God first built an altar to, to their God and sacrificed offerings on it. And they, they sacrificed offerings in accordance with the scriptures from Moses. They went back and they said, you know what? We need to, we need to seek after God because we're in a serious situation. We're in exile because we didn't listen to him or obey his word. We need to get into the word. So they got into the word. They, they looked at the law of Moses. They made sacrifices. All while enemies were gathering around them um, threatening them and looming over them and trying to horn their way into the people of God in a way uh, to cause trouble. So it, it's just an amazing story of, of a people who were humbled enough to realize we really need to get our priorities straight, <laughs> even if it means putting ourselves in danger, because obviously building a wall before you build an altar seems like the smart thing to do, right? The wall protects you from the essay groups. But no, the rebuilding project was, was long and hard, but uh, next week we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah the, the, the wall and how that wall was put up and just how God uh, worked with his people to make that happen, to make that happen. It was a real communal project. So at New Life, you know, Jen and I uh, had this really cool idea that we thought that we'd ask every household in the church uh, to take a piece of this cardstock that we're providing, and I have a stack of them here. There's uh, more on the Welcome Center outside. And... Uh, we're asking you to make a household block for your, for your family or your household. And, and just to write on the block a, a picture that represents you, the spiritual gifts that, that you bring to the, to the building project, something you're praying for, right, for God to do in your, life, in your household right now. And just putting, and then we're going to make a wall with all these different pieces of cardstock representing our new life family because God is doing a rebuilding work in our church right now. You know, coming, coming out of a, a season of pruning, then a season of, of COVID when there was... Uh, a, lot, a lot of difficulty. Now, coming out on the other side of that, we, th- we think um, it's a time where God's building and rebuilding. 
I mean, and, and uh, it's been said by a couple of people in the church, the platform rebuild feels kind of like a metaphor for what God's doing in the church body, that God is building us strong and, and shoring us up. So even if you're not the artistic type, even if, even if you're flinching at the idea of doing this, um, <laughs> some people just are like, oh, we don't want to do this. And, but this is going to be really cool. We're excited about it. Uh, grab one of those sheets, and there's instructions on there. Do it with your kids. Do it with your people in your household. Do it with your small group. And then we'll put them on the wall here next week as we talk about the wall being built. And again, these are also available on the Welcome Center. And if you, need, if you can't find one for some reason, just get with me and I'll get you one. But we're all about doing crafts, right? I guess. It's more than a craft. It's, it's also a wall, a, a, a wall for praying and interceding for the family of God. Seeing people's gifts, seeing people's things they're praying for in their houses right now. We can look at those things and we can lift each other up. And we can meaningfully be connected in that unity in Christ that God's given us that, uh, that was talked about in faith stories. But this week, we look at, we're looking at the story of, of Esther. Ooh, there's my notes. It's like my, my tablet just shut everything down, so give me one second here. And Esther is a different kind of story than we've seen before. And I owe a lot of, uh, I owe a lot of uh, credit to my, the seminary that I went to had an excellent teaching on this book. So, so, mu so much of this I just got from my seminary classes. Um, but, but Esther is one of two books in the Bible named after a woman. What's the other one? Ruth, that's right. So, uh, because of the nature of patriarchal society back then, that's just how it kind of rolled out. But it's one of two, two books named after women. It is the first book in the Bible to, to refer to God's people as being the Jews. Did you know that? Yeah, it's in, it's in Esther when this happens. A hundred years after the Babylonian exile, the people of God are referred to as the Jews. And they think it was originally a slur, like kind of like a racial slur. Actually, the, the word Hebrew is also a, a racial slur from back before Jew Jewish. Uh, if you look at how the language has evolved, Jewish people have been called a lot of terrible things in the history of the world. I actually couldn't believe it. I, I, I looked at how, you know, Hebrew was, was probably a racial slur. Now it's become something they've owned Jew, the Jews, was like a racial slur, which is now something that's, that's owned and, and used positively. But throughout the, the history of the world, Jewish people have been singled out, persecuted, called names. You know, it's nothing new. And there's just something, something interesting about, uh, about the Jewish people. They're the apple of God's eye. They were the original people of God. And they're still, in many parts of the world, persecuted. So the Jews uh, are called the Jews for the first time in this book. And Esther's story, as I said, happens 100 years after the Babylonian exile we read about in Daniel a couple of weeks ago. So some of the Jews had been sent to rebuild the wall in the temple under King Cyrus of Persia. Others in the Jewish community remained living in, in, in Persia, in Susa, and these were the, the people that were left behind. And Esther, Esther is a really uh, strange book, or unique book in the Bible, because it doesn't mention God once. It doesn't talk about God explicitly. It doesn't say what God was doing. Yet, as you go through the book, there's all kinds of providence happening. You know, things, things that lined up perfectly that wouldn't have worked out unless God was behind them. And uh, I love this phrase that, that, I, that I read, providence disguised as happenstance. There's a lot in, in the book of Esther, which, which appears to be coincidental. Like, wow, what good luck. But it's really the providence of God working through. 
And so, you know, um, Martin Luther, who was our, the person that, that started the, the Reformation that we owe a lot of our um, thoughts and teachings and the way we, we work to, uh, Martin Luther thought this, should, this book did not belong in the Bible because it didn't mention God. And he said there is, the quote was, this book has no gospel content. <laughs> so Luther didn't like it. Um, but I disagree. I really think that actually the book of Ezra is the perfect book for us in our day. Because the book of, uh, the book of, uh, you know, we live in a time where you don't hear about God from day to day, from week to week, from month to month in culture. Uh, we don't hear people, except for Christian people, really talking about, you know, what God is doing sovereignly in the background. You know, we don't see what God is doing. And we see world events happening, and we, we, we kind of imagine maybe God's doing this, maybe God's doing that, but ultimately we don't, we don't see those things. Um, but this book helps us to identify God's work when it's not explicitly shown and to recognize it and to follow after what God is doing. And so this book can teach us to have eyes to see when God's not explicitly talked about, he's still working. He doesn't give up on his people. So I think there's a lot of gospel content in the book of Esther. One of my very favorite things that, has, that came out of VBS, Vacation Bible School, maybe four or five years ago, the program that we did from group publishing had something called God Sightings. And every day, we'd have the kids in a group, and we'd, we talked about, you know, God Sightings, um, that, you know, God is working all around you, and then come, come tomorrow to VBS and share with us what you saw God doing. And so kids, you know, we had an open mic. Kids started coming to VBS saying, you know, I prayed for my mom, and she, feel, she felt better. We prayed for this, and this happened. Just training them to see God in everything. And I, and I noticed that this God settings thing actually took off with a lot of the adults, and it's become part of our language for the, for the adults in the church, you know, the, the adult disciples say, saying, let's look for what God's doing. And that's what Esther kind of challenges us to do. Praying for God to meet our needs as a family, um, ha having our kids hear us pray and seek to see what God is doing and to have eyes of faith, it's so important because we live in a world that really does not uh, talk about God. So we need to be, have our eyes open. So in this age where God's providential work, his, the phrase was providence disguised as happenstance, is no longer spelled out for us in, in, in times when God is just not mentioned anymore in culture. The, the, even the composition of this book teaches us to, to keep an eye. It's a great skill. I don't know about you, but I often, I often hear the news and I just wish I knew what God was doing on the other end of this thing. You know, amen? You know, seeing, seeing the invasion this week on the news is very troubling. You know, praying, for, praying for Ukraine, praying for God's work in Russian Christians and people that are just trapped in their situation. Um, you know, we don't know exactly what God is doing, but we know who God is. We know that God is good. And he sovereignly rules the world. And all of these things that are happening, God has control. He still has control. And so we need to keep on praying and seeking after him and seeking to have eyes of faith. Um, and I think that when we, when we practice looking for God sightings, for happenstance, or for sovereign, sovereignty disguised as happenstance, we begin to see God's work in our lives. So God is not mentioned once in this book, but signs of God's activity are everywhere. We're going to take a look at that. So the book of Esther is nine chapters long. I'm going to be kind of doing a, a top-down view of it because we can't do the whole thing um, in, its, in all of its glory. But as I said, um, King Xerxes and the Persian Empire that, that was, uh, 
had um, exiled Esther and her people, you know, they were a much more progressive society than Assyria and Babylon had been. If you remember, when, when Assyria originally uh, brought God's people into exile, their, their whole plot was kill everybody and burn the city to the ground and salt the fields. Like, pretty much just a total annihilation was what Assyria did, uh, or Babylon. And then when, when, da- when the time of Daniel came and Daniel and his, his friends were brought into captivity, that was, uh, that was Babylon. And Babylon was much more refined than the Assyrians. Babylon said, let's not kill everybody. Let's take the, the smartest, most skilled people from this society, bring them into our world, and then tr- treat them to be Babylonians. And then we get this, you know, these gifted people from other nations we conquer to work for us. So sort of like a more, a more and let, let's, let's, uh, let's, as you saw in Daniel, let's make them eat our food, wear our clothes, and do what we say. And then, the, then our kingdom is going to be bolstered up by having this person in our kingdom. So that's a pretty progressive stance. By the time King Xerxes and the Persian Empire came along, this is the third place that people were deported, it was even more refined. And uh, King Xerxes, who ruled during the time of Esther, he allowed the Jewish people's culture to remain intact for the most part. They even allowed their newly acquired people and provinces to retain their identity, to, to retain their land. And what they did was they, de- they deposited a, a, what, was, what was called a satrap, a leader who kind of oversaw this, this, uh, this part of the Persian Empire that was, that was conquered. It was a pretty progressive policy. If you remember with, with the Romans, when the Jews were um, in Roman captivity, the Ro- Rome did the same thing, same kind of philosophy. We're going to capture these people, and we're going to let them remain Jewish and let, let them follow their God. And, you know, as long as they respect the king, the, the, the emperor, then we'll let them do what they want to do because they knew that people are happier when you leave them alone. So you have happier subjects if you're kinder when you do this. And, that, and that's kind of the situation that um, the Persian Empire is in. Um, it was a pretty, pretty cool place, pretty, pretty uh, progressive in, in terms of how it treated the people it conquered. The central theme of this story of Esther is um, the place and identity of the Jewish people in the world. Um, they're, they're simultaneously subjects of the empire of Persia and a foreign people um, to the eyes of their neighbors. So the Jewish people are conquered, they're taken to Persia, they're, they're, they're treated like citizens, but the neighbors look at them with some suspicion. And the main action in this book centers around the throne of King Xerxes. And uh, in, in Esther 1, you know, King Xerxes is a class act. Uh, he is just the worst. Like some of the, like some of the worst kings of Israel and Judah, um, you know, the, the guy is constantly intoxicated, constantly shouting for thing, people to do things, and constantly flying off the handle at people for not doing what he says. He's a pretty rough guy. And so Xerxes, this uh, kind of drunken maniac king, <laughs> during the story, after an all-day and all-night drinking binge, he's hanging out with his friends, and he goes, oh, let my wife come in and entertain us, because she's really pretty. So Vashti was his wife, and um, Queen Vashti refused to come. Good on her. We cheer for, for, for Vashti. Now, that's a, that's a good thing to, to not come. However, off with her head, because that's just the way things were back then, pretty messed up. But uh, so King Xerxes got really drunk. He, he put his wife out of his presence, and she was, she was judged just for not doing this. And then the next day, there's a search for a new queen for the king. <laughs> just a terrible, terrible story. 
So what, what King Xerxes did, being the kind of chauvinistic, drunken king that he was, he said, let's just have a giant national beauty pageant, and the winner will be my wife. Because <laughs> he was the king, and he could do what he wanted. You know, as they said, as Mel Brooks said, it's good to be the king, but pretty rough. So in Esther 2.2, Xerxes makes this decree, let the beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And then the plot of our story is set in motion. I'm going to read from Esther 2, 5 to 7. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, who he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, her Jewish name was Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. This passage is the first time that the Jews are called the Jews in the Bible, in, in, in verse 5, which is really interesting. So Mordecai, he is, a, he is a Jewish man from the tribe of Benjamin. These are descendants of King Saul, so really royal blood. And he has this, this beautiful niece who he adopts as his own daughter named Esther. And Esther happens to be one of those, you know, people that was seen for what she was, a beautiful person. And she was brought into the beauty pageant that King Xerxes was, was having. Which that would have made me very nervous if I was Mordecai. Would not have been very happy about that. So she's, she's fast-tracked to the head of the line. She's apparently a very stunning person. And all the while, her Jewish heritage is kept a secret from King Xerxes and his people. She keeps that a secret, as does Mordecai. And Mordecai, being concerned for his, his niece, his daughter, camps out in front of the royal compound in Susa to keep an eye on her and to track her progress as she kind of makes it into through this beauty pageant. And one day, while Mordecai is hanging about in the city gate, he overhears two of the royal guards plotting to kill King Xerxes. And he reports them to, to the king, and they're hanged. And, and Mordecai is commended for his loyalty to the throne. This is also an important part of the story because Mordecai is a Jewish person by heritage as well, but the king doesn't know that. So, but he is commended as he helped the king. Already we see the, the, the sovereignty of God lining things up to do something good for his people. You know, there happens to be this crazy party where the king ends up putting his wife out of his presence, puts her to death. They have a beauty pageant, and God's, one of God's people gets into the, the palace, if you will. And Mordecai, her uncle slash father, is honored because he actually saved the king. So God is lining things up. There's something happening here. So in, ch in chapter 3, the, the major part of the story kind of comes into conflict. Um, Esther 3, 1 to 6. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamed Hamadatha. I stumbled. Oh, I was trying to get through this without mispronouncing anything. But there's so many giant names, guys. Oh my gosh. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than all of the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai's a good Jew. He only bows down to God. And Haman is not happy. Now, when this story is read, even to this day, among the Jewish people. It's a very proud story in their heritage. It's read during the Feast of Purim. Um, everyone has a, the kids all have sound makers, and whenever Haman's name is, is, is read, they, they shake the sound maker to, to wipe out the sound of his name even being said, because he's, he's kind of like this anti-villain anti, um, in their story. 
So the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to Mordecai, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them, and this is where he revealed it, he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman, boo, <laughs> looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. But talk about a major anti-Jewish bent. This guy, Haman, boo, says, oh, it's not enough to just kill him. Now that I know that he's a Jew, let's kill all of his people. Messed up. So this is our bad guy. He's not just any bad guy. He is a descendant of Israel's ancient enemies, the Amalekites. And those Amalekites were defeated by King Saul in the first book of Samuel. So, you know, Haman has a bone to pick, if you will. This, the exile kind of scrambled up the lives and beliefs of the Jews. And, but but uh, in, in, in this story, you know, as we see, it's reopening these old ancient wounds of honor and dishonor from the past between the Amalekites and God's people. That's another reason why this story is so important to the Jewish people when they read it, because it's representative of their, of their history as, as a people. So Haman uh, waits patiently, trying to make a plan to destroy God's people, not just, not just Mordecai. He bides his time for five years, and Haman and his advisors cast Purim. That's, that's the, that Jewish word for the festival, Purim. It means casting lots, means throwing the dice to discover when the time was right to carry out this annihilation of the Jewish people. So they're trusting the dice with that. Even in this, God is sovereign. Even in the, the role of the dice, is even, God's even sovereign in this, as we've seen in the scripture. And the moment was right for God's people when, when uh, the omen uh, tells Haman to present his plan to the king. Haman comes to the king of Xerxes and said, there is a people living among our subjects who follow a different law, who dishonor the king, and he asks Xerxes for permission to pass harsh laws to punish the Jewish people if they, if they ever step out of line, meaning if you don't bow down, then you're stepping out of line. And the king, being the king that he is and probably intoxicated, um, grants his request, and Haman sends the decree out to all the corners of the empire that the Jews are to be annihilated on a certain day. So Mordecai hears this news, and he goes into mourning. He sends word to Esther through one of the uh, people in the court. In Esther 4, 7, we pick it up. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. So Esther is in this unique position, and this is something that Mordecai realizes. God has placed her into the kingdom of, of, of uh, this, this uh, Persian king for this very time. In fact, this is where we get that, uh, the quote for such a time as this. So Esther is afraid of upsetting the king, because if you upset the king, he what? He kills you. He's just a messed up guy. So Mordecai makes a, uh, this speech for Esther in Esther 4, 13 and 14. You've probably heard this before. He sent back this answer to, to Esther. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows? But that you may have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai had been around long enough and he knew the history of his people well enough to know that God would raise up a deliverer someday for his people. But he says to Esther, you're scared, but you, you may be that deliverer this time. Maybe you're the judge God's raising up. Maybe you're the, the ruler that God's raising up for such a time as this. Maybe providence disguised as random stuff is happening. God's setting this whole thing up. So Esther is inspired by this speech and agrees to make an appeal to King Xerxes. And she knows the way to King Xerxes' heart, partying hard. So she invites the king and Haman also, probably to, to stroke his ego, to a feast where she gives them lots of wine and they eat lots of good food. And the king, uh, in character, he offers to grant any request that she make of him up to the half of his kingdom. But Esther, she holds back. She, she, she doesn't do anything yet. She doesn't pounce on the opportunity. Um, she, she just continues to have a nice party and then says, you know what? Come to another party tomorrow. A second giant party. We wine and food. Lots of fun. And we'll talk then. So this whole series of events lets the king kind of relax at that initial party, um, keeping him happy. Haman feels great that he was invited. He feels like he's near royalty. He likes the power. Um, everyone leaves the palace smiling, except for Ruth. Except for uh, uh, Esther is probably frightened. But um, everyone kind of left this first party happy. So Haman, he leaves this par- the, the first party before the second party. Um, and he walks, he, he walks out, just happy to have been at this party, I imagine. And he sees Mordecai, who's the biggest downer of his life. He is not like Mordecai. And, Mor- and Mordecai, once again, refuses to bow to Haman. And so Haman storms home, and he, he makes a plan. He, he makes a 50-foot gallow to hang Mordecai for all the Jews to see. He's so angry. That night, in another providence disguised as happenstance, you know, God k- keeps King Xerxes from sleeping. And in order to fall asleep at night, he says... Bring out the history of all the things I've ever done, and let's hear good stories about me until I fall asleep. Which I know that, um, you know, people these days, a lot of people have trouble sleeping, and a lot of people will say, I listen to interviews from YouTube and fall asleep as I'm hearing this weird interview or a documentary. Same kind of thing. He's trying to get his sleep in. Melatonin's not doing it. So he orders his attendants to read from his chronicles, and what chapter do they choose to read to King Xerxes? They read about, about Mordecai foiling the plot of King Xerxes' people and keeping him from being assassinated. And uh, King Xerxes is like, wow, what did we ever do for that guy? We should have sent him like a fruit basket or something. <laughs> so he hears that story. He's thinking, I got to do something nice for Mordecai. Um, but he goes to sleep. The next day, Haman arrives at the palace to ask for permission to hang Mordecai. So this scene, this is really getting good. This scene begins at chapter 6. It's a very awkward scene. Esther 6, 6. Listen to this. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? He didn't say who it was. But we know Haman well enough to know that he thinks it's him. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, may the man the king delights to honor have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden one with a royal crest placed on its head. Let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. 
Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. <laughs> and do not neglect anything you have recommended. So, frustrated, angry, deflated, Haman must obey, because if you don't obey the king, off with your head. He carries out the king's decree, and Mordecai is paraded around the city while Haman shouts, this is what the king does for the person he delights in the most. Um, everyone is cheering right now who reads this together during Purim, right? They're, Boo, Haman. Yeah, Mordecai, you know. Because the Jewish people got beat down so much. These stories are so hopeful, right? And it's something God really did. It just shows that God's presence is still with them. He's still working despite how things look and feel. So with this humiliation kind of in his, um, in his mind, Haman returns to the palace to attend the second party from Esther. And after dinner, when the king has had his share of wine, Esther finally makes her request. Esther 7, 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would, not have, kept, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, An adversary, an enemy, the vile Haman! Boo! Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. So H Haman's bad day just keeps getting worse. And the king orders Haman to be hung on the very gallows he had constructed for Mordecai. And all the people are cheering, even though it's very morbid. Esther 8:15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and purple in a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So this is, um, I, I missed the whole part in the middle, but you know, what the king ends up saying is, you know, we, can't, we can't go back on the edict that I made, but what I'm going to say is all of the Jewish people can defend themselves from being annihilated, and, anyone, and everyone should try to help the Jews fight against their enemies. And the result of that edict... It, it basically canceled out the king's previous edict because now everyone's scared to attack the Jews. So the Jews are saved. Esther, Mordecai, and, and all their people living in Persia were saved, and it says that many people became Jews because uh, they, they saw God's favor on them, they saw the, the, the way the king was working with them, and we remember that this, this desire that people become a part of the people of God has been a desire of God from the beginning, from Genesis till now. They have a people for himself, from every tribe and nation uh, who come to him and are part of his, his family. So many people that were non-Jews became Jewish people during this time. So Mordecai is made second in command, basically, in the land. He's wearing the royal robe and all that stuff. There's, there's actually a Jewish person in the palace with the king. So in the end of the book, in chapter 9, it's basically a story of, of the Jews' vindication and them defeating their enemies and becoming honored among the people. 
And the, the book ends with the establishment of a new holiday, and this is the Feast of Purim that the Jews celebrate to this day, named after the lots cast by Haman and his people. And it's still celebrated by the Jewish people nationwide. And that's the book of Esther. That's the book of Esther, as we're, as we're fond of... Uh, we, we, like to, we like to watch the Bible Project videos, me and Jamin do, and they always say, and that's the book of Esther when they're done going through a book. Um, it's a tale of, of not just survival, but thriving in captivity. It's a, it's a tale about God lining things up in sovereignty that seem like happenstance, but they're actually him moving and working. And uh, there's, there's this loud proclamation that the God of the Jews is still with them, even in this strange foreign place, even as they're under discipline. And God's providence for the Jews in exile there, there is still providence for them. There's still God working uh, through all these um, remaining days that the Jews are in exile. I was looking over my notes for another tidbit that I had. Remember, I had the kids by myself this week, remember? <laughs> I just think it's such a cool book um, because you really do see, there it is. Um, it doesn't mention Israel's God, but God's presence and his intervention are all through the whole thing. Esther happens to be chosen by the king, after the Haman cast the lots, she's chosen by the king as his wife. Haman happens to be an ancient descendant of the ancient Israelite enemies, the Amalekites. Mordecai happens to save the king's life. Then the king reads the story and happens to honor Mordecai later in the story. Uh, this is a, a real, uh, for the Jewish people, a real reminder that even though no one's talking about God, even though we are under discipline in a foreign land, God has not given up on us. He's with us. And, uh, and to look at life with eyes of faith. The story of Purim, Purim is that you know, God has not given up on his people. And God will be honored, and many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. So I hope that this little look into the book of Esther is giving you this sense of having eyes to see God's work in the world today in your own household, in, on the news at night, whatever's going on in our community. You know, God is working, God is moving, and we need to have eyes to see what God is doing. And it's not going to be told us what God is doing by the, by the media sources that we see or by, uh, by, you know, it's not going to be mentioned because God is not a very big part of our world and people's minds these days. Uh, we as his followers are to have eyes of faith and to view things that are seemingly coincidences as being God's hand and God's work and to pray and join God in what he's doing because ultimately God is going to have the victory and everything's going to go God's way. Until then, we have to have faithful eyes to see what God is doing and the remembrance of what God has done in history as well. So I'm going to invite the worship team forward. We're going to close with a song called It Is Well. It seemed like a good choice given that even in the midst of exile, it really all was well for God's people and all is well with us as well.